There's something to get excited about. The devil cannot bring us lower than the will of God permits. Put it in your memory bank. He cannot bring you lower than the will of God permits. A third source of our hurt in the soul is the enemy of the world. Jesus used this term, world, with his disciples, warning them, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Pretty strong words, John 15, verse 19. Now the term world that Jesus uses here is the Greek word cosmos. And it means the aggregate of things earthly. Not, not principally terra firma, dirt, but things like the philosophy of the world, the thinking of the world, the goals of the world, the aspirations, the values of the world. Don't love those things. We are warned. And John makes it clear that everything the world is, God is not. Everything the world promotes, God opposes. We could say this world, way, the world is anti-God. Not about to promote God and theology and the truth of God's word. And that's why John warned, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he can do, that comes not from the Father but from the world. 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16. And James adds, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1, verse 27. The world is opposed to God and also to godliness. It pollutes our thinking as it strives desperately to keep us as one of its own. Like the devil, it doesn't want to let you go. Worldling. <laughs> Jesus called the devil, the, the God of this world. And this God wants your worship. He doesn't want you leaving his fold. But compromise is not an option. Jesus said, or James rather, excuse me, James said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4 verse 4. Wow, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Sounds like James is throwing down the gauntlet and saying, it, you know, it's either or. You can't be both. Now understand, this is not the cosmos that God created. This is the world Adam and his sin created, which we were talking about in the adult class this morning. So when, as people reconciled to God, we leave the world system of thinking, doing, lusting, sinning, it knows how to hurt us for our traitorous departure. It uses mockery, insults, public scorn, belittlement, illegal actions, criminal assault, anything, everything to oppose the new you. But you know what? When that happens to us, we're in the best of company. Because Jesus put it this way. It's enough for the student to be like the teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, which is a biblical name, another name for Satan. If they called me Mr. Satan, how much more the members of the household? Matthew 10, verse 25. Do we really expect to be treated by the world any differently than Jesus our Savior was treated? Now, I'm not minimizing these, this. This slander is hurtful to us. It was hurtful to Jesus too. But let's keep our wits about us and realize that the world is an enemy of God and his people. And to have the world as your enemy is to be in the best of company because Christ Jesus experienced this animosity before you did. So I'm saying learn to wear the badge proudly and stop lamenting your lot in life. Paul put it this way, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered <laughs> As sheep to be slaughtered. That's what the world thinks of us. No, no, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8, verse 35 and following. So the hurt we experience in our souls comes from our past, be it our sin or sin of others against us. It comes from the attacks of the evil one. It comes from the godless philosophy and actions of the world. And then fourthly and sadly, it sometimes comes from the brothers and sisters of the faith. Things like um, snide remarks, put-downs, jealousy, backbiting, 
bitterness, lack of understanding of our plight, lies, slander, misrepresentations, betrayal, and many more works of the flesh are not exclusive to the world. They are found in the church as well because our fleshly nature pops out now and again. And we speak before we think. And we speak before we pray. And sometimes I think the words from fellow believers towards us are the most hurting. Because we think in our mind, gee, what did I do? This should never come. You know, if, if this were my pagan neighbor saying these things to me, okay, but a brother or a sister in Christ... Bottom line is we live in a world of hurt. There's no escape. There is no exemption just because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no shelter for you to retreat to and to hide. The world is a world full of hurt and pain. So secondly, let's look at some of the trials or hurts that come our way. Because our text, and we're looking primarily at verse 13... No temptation, no trial has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Verse 13. First thing we learn about this is this is a proving trial. The term Paul uses in this text indicates that the trials God permits to come into our lives are really their tests. Their tests. Now, if you were in school, I suppose we have some students here who would say, I hate, that's what I hate about school, is the tests. Well, you're in the school of a school of experience. And God brings tests into your life and mine. And they are designed to see what you're made of spiritually. Not for the benefit of God who already knows all things. But for your own benefit, for your own knowledge. What do you know about yourself? I was reading about the NASCAR trials for the Daytona 500, which has really become quite famous. They receive more applicants than could possibly be safe to race, and so they begin a process of elimination, which they call time trials. Time trials. In other words, how many seconds does it take to race around the track? How fast did that car go? Let's see. Ready, go. And they click a stopwatch. And then they will put two cars together in a dual drag race. It's a process of elimination and placement. 
Would-be contenders who can't cut the grade are eliminated, and top speed contenders are assigned the best slots in the racing roster. Everyone who signs up for the trials has every expectation that they can compete on the level that Daytona 500 officials expect. But they will never know until and unless they are pitted against other top drivers in cars. And so both man and machine must be proven before entering the race, known as the Daytona 500. Well, in similar fashion, God proves his people. He tests us with trials. Now again, not to inform himself, but to inform us of what we are in Christ and what we can endure in Christ. In Genesis, Moses wrote about Abraham saying, sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, a place where I will show you. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'm going to tell you about. Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2. What a horrific thing for God to command of Abraham. And a seemingly immoral thing to ask at that. But the truth of the matter is when we sing in the hymn, we're going to sing this as our closing hymn, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Ooh, that's a hard pill to swallow. Here shall we stand, my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there, and he holds me that I shall not fall. And so, so to him I leave it all. Great hymn. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us just how Abraham passed this test. You go to Moriah, to a mountain that I, I'm going to point out, and there I want you to sacrifice your son. Yeah, and it's the son you love. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, True, God stopped Abraham in the midst of raising the knife to slay Isaac. But I ask this question, what was Abraham thinking? What would have happened had God not interceded? That's, that's the serious question. The writer says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring is going to be counted. 
So here's a question. How was Abraham going to have offspring if Isaac, his son, is dead? Abraham's an old man, you realize. He's in his 90s, past the age of producing children. Here's what the writer says. Abraham reasoned. (laughs) This is so beautiful. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. I want you to think about that. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You know, because he was, he was as good as dead. The knife was raised. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. I wonder, would you have passed this test, this trial, as Abraham did? You might think, no. <laughs> Never would I have passed the test. But the text we are studying today teaches... Yes, you would. Yes, you would. Because of God's intervention and grace. Here's a clue. Do not hypothesize what you will or will not do in a given situation. God's grace is given in the hour of need, not before. And you need not worry about matters that God may never call you to endure. That's fruitless worry. And Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, verse 34. And I would add, each day has God's grace. Sufficient for the day. So the first thing we learn about trials is that they're often sent our way as proving trials. They're tests. Again, not to prove to God what's in your heart or how you're going to function. It's to prove to you that you can function by the grace of God. Secondly, the trials that come our way are common trials. No trial has seized you except what is common to man. It's been said, misery loves company, which means that while people are experiencing something that is making them miserable, they will often find comfort in companionship, someone else sharing in the misery and helping them to keep their perspective. And Paul is saying, all you have to do is look around, and when you do, you will see that there is always someone available who is hurting along with you. You're not alone in this. This is especially comforting in the brotherhood of believers. But let's not be naive like Asaph, who wrote of the wicked in Psalm 73, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. As Asaph goes on and on blubbering about 
how the wicked have it so much better than the believers. Psalm 73, verse 4 and 5. Well, this is not so. Asaph is in a blue slump. He's feeling sorry for himself. And so he points, rather paints this idealistic picture of the wicked so as to make his own lot in life to appear to be exceptionally bad. The wicked, wicked suffer from the same ills as you do. Cancer or other diseases, loss of jobs, foreclosures on their property, broken homes, financial reversals, flat tires, bad hair days, whatever. They experience it all. What we as believers need to realize is that our lot in life is no rosier on the human plane than what our fellow citizens experience. We tend to think that because we are God's people by faith that God is going to smooth our path and remove every ill, every obstacle, every negative and bad thing indicative of living in a cursed world. And Paul is writing in our text, hey guys, it isn't going to happen. You are not unique. Your trials, your temptations are just part of the commonality of life that everyone experiences. But with this caveat, you will come through victorious in the end. You will not be broken by the trial. You will be strengthened instead. How can we even think of the wicked not experiencing tough times when our country has just gone through two major hurricanes and the flooding and the loss of homes? And those people stand before their wrecked properties and they say, there is my life's work and it's gone. Did you have flood insurance? No flood insurance. Thirdly, the trials that come our way are a limited trial. Paul writes, God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. Now here we're introduced to a number of thoughts about trials, and I'll call them subpoints. They're in your bulletin. Number one, God is behind the trial. Well, that's something to think about. God is behind the trial. Huh. I remember com comedian Flip Wilson, black comedian, used, used to dress up as a woman for, for jokes purposes. And he had this routine where he'd walk by this wonderful display in the window, a beautiful dress, and he's wrestling with the devil about whether he should go on and go in and try it on. He says, no, I can't do that. And, he says, and the devil says to him, oh, everyone deserves a try-on. You need to go in and try it on. So back and forth and back and forth he goes. And the whole 
desperate matter is he blames God in the end for the dry on. Well, God is behind the trials. But he's not pushing us to sin. The universe, and more particularly your world, does not run by chance. So, of course, God is in the trial. Not only did God create the universe, but the Bible asserts, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17. The psalmist says, Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked, for the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The days of the blameless are known to the Lord, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster they will not wither. In the days of famine they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies will be like the beauty of the fields. They will vanish and vanish like smoke. Psalm 37, verse 16 and following. God is behind your trial. And without minimizing Satan's evil intent, he cannot step beyond the boundaries set for him by God. The whole book of Job is about that. God is behind the trial. But secondly, God is superior to the trial. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. Really? You know, if the book of Job teaches us anything, it teaches us that despite what Satan would like to have done as to, and do, do to God's people, he is restricted by God. Satan wanted to bring Job down and reduce him to poverty and break his allegiance to God. The thought Satan expressed to God, we would think blasphemous, but Satan expressed it anyway. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan said to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Job 1 verse 9. The less than subtle accusation was that the only reason Job served God and loved God was because God made him rich and built a hedge around him to shelter him from loss. Who wouldn't love God if that were the case? And so Satan was given permission by God to touch all Job owned, but not Job himself. And so Satan took to it. He took Job's wealth. He took his land. He killed all of his children, which were many. He did all of that, only to be shamed in the end when Job worshipped God, saying, The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
I took the wind right out of Satan's sails. You think you did this to me? And at this point, I'm not sure Job understood what the contest was that was going on. But he doesn't say, Satan, you did this to me. You took, no. He says, Lord, you did it. Which is the truth of the matter. Well, having failed in this temptation, next Satan suggested that God's restrictions made it impossible for Satan to get to the real man. Skin for skin, Satan said. A man will give all he has for his own life. And so Satan was given permission by God to inflict Job with health issues. But again, restricted, you must spare his life. God is superior to the trial. Satan is not in charge. Your sinful past is not in charge. The world's criticism and mockery is not in charge. Your weak and sinful flesh and your will is not in charge. God is in charge. And he's put a limit on the intensity of what the evil principalities of this wicked world want to inflict. God is behind the trial and he's superior to the trial. And that is why Paul can assure us he will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. This is the answer to those times when in self-pity we cry out, I have had it, God. I'm telling you right now, I can't take it anymore. Enough is enough. I'm out of here. And God comes to the fore and he says, hang in there. You're not at the breaking point. I'm here to see to it that you do not break. Your trial is not designed to break you but to strengthen you. And that's the fourth point we see here, that it's a victorious trial. When you are tried, he will also provide a way out so that you may stand up, there's the strength, that you may stand up under it. Here we discover the mind of God in our trials. He is not out to break us, but to make us Stand firm. And the context of this verse that we have been analyzing is Israel's pitiful idolatry in the Old Testament. Look at verse 6 and following. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not crumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Verses 6 through 10 of our text. What was the problem? Verse 12. They thought they could stand firm and never fall without God in their lives. Without love for God. Without compliance to his word. And they were dead wrong. And they were judged for it. 
God hates pride. That's idolatry. It's self-worship. And he'll bring you law. And so Paul is saying, in effect, the trials of life, while common to all men, demand the faithfulness of God, the control of God, as an escape hatch provided by God so you can stand. Verse 14. Therefore, so here's the conclusion of the matter. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Don't follow Israel's evil example. Verse 11, for which they were severely judged by God. None of the braggadocia we hear in our day, well, I don't need God. I can live my life by my own just fine without any of his intervention. No, you can't. His intervention mitigates the trials of life so that you can stand. And should God for one moment relinquish the control of your life to your own will or Satan's evil intent to name another, you would perish like all those Israelites who died in the wilderness because of their sin. All right, you don't want me in your life, God said. Hands off. I'm out of here. And they never made it to the promised land. Now let me give you some key thinking to help face the trials of life. Number one, pride has no place in our thinking if we expect victory over life's trials. Israel learned in short order that being titled people of God was a label that could only be solidified and verified as God intervened and made them stand. Their spiritual privileges did not, can I say it this way, did not protect them from judgment. Oh boy, and did they have spiritual privileges. Look at verse 1. They were all under the cloud, the cloud of God's protection. All passed through the sea, verse 1. All were baptized into Moses. Verse 2, no greater spiritual leader in all their history than Moses. All, are, all ate the same spiritual food, verse 3 which was the manna. And John 6 says that Christ is the bread from heaven that they ate. All drank from the same spiritual rock. That again, Christ himself, verse 4 of the text. Now read verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Privilege after privilege after privilege after privilege. Did it benefit them? No. They didn't trust God. They didn't have faith in the God that gave them those privileges. They forgot God. If you want God's provision for the trials that he sends into your life, ditch the pride. Ditch the self-worship. Ditch the macho attitude. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, says Peter. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. 
Men, lead your families by example, not by laying down the law. Keep the rules simple. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, as Christ sacrificed for her. Love your children. Deal gently, compassionately with their sins. Harsh fathers are prideful fathers. And when you set your face like flint, God will use it to strike the match of your own destruction. So deal with your pride. Listen. Learn. Love. It's not being weak. It's being strong in Christ. You need to realize that having privilege does not exonerate you from trials that can break you. Secondly, learn from the bad examples of our spiritual heritage. You know, sometimes I, sometimes I hear believers use the sins of the Bible characters as justification for their own sin. Well, David committed adultery. Well, Judah slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. Well, David trusted in the headcount of his mighty men rather than in the intervention of God. Look at verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as what? Warnings for us. On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. How are we to use the examples of the Old Testament people? Well if the example is in the form of sin. We're not to emulate those sins. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9. We should not test the Lord as some of them did. Boom de boom de boom. Look at the examples and think straight thoughts. That's the lesson of the lies of the Old Testament Israelites who refused to see God in their trials. They happily sinned. They didn't care at all that God was disgraced by their own disgraceful conduct. They cared nothing for God's faithfulness and his protection or his deliverance from Egypt. They grumbled. They complained. They sinned in his face and in the sight of all the pagans around them. The lesson of their past is to say, don't emulate bad conduct. Learn from their wickedness and what happened to them. And one more lesson, work on your self-pity. Paul describes his many sufferings this way, for our light and momentary troubles. <laughs> Would you describe your sufferings that way? Oh, just light, momentary troubles. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what's seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen 
that's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18. Paul had a proper perspective about his trials and sufferings. He said, compared to what they're doing for me spiritually, they're just light and momentary. I used to ask Wally Barlow, how you doing, Wally? His answer was always this, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Whew. What a perspective to take on our trials and sufferings. So in closing, I ask, where are your values? Answer honestly. Answer honestly. And you may discover the source of your anxiety and your fear and your lack of peace and your lack of happiness and so forth. Because you're expecting more than God has ever promised in this world. This is not heaven. <laughs> heaven is to come. Glory is yet to follow live our lives with that in focus. Our Lord, thank you for your word and for your truth. Forgive us when we, uh, we want to rail against you because things just don't, they're, they're not what we expected. They're not going the way we want. This is a wonderful text here about trials. We all have them. They're common to us. They're not meant to break us. They're meant to strengthen us. What is more, along with the trial, you provide a way out so that we can endure and bear up under it. We can learn from it. The trials are meant not to break us, but to make us strong. And if we could see them that way, that would help a long, and would go a long way to help our attitudes, which sometimes really stink with regard to God. So, Lord, help us to see clearly what you are doing. And you are telling us in this text what you are up to, what you are doing. Paul even says that what happened to the Old Testament saints are given here as a warning for us. So they went through things to warn us not to go through things the way they did. Not to do the things they, that brought heartache into their lives. It's great for you to use these bad examples to warn us so that we don't follow in their footsteps. The footsteps of Christ and your disciples. Help us to walk in those. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. For our closing hymn, we're changing the hymn to one 108 in Trinity, that's the red hymnal, 108. Let's stand as we sing.
Sometimes the world chafes at the thought that God is in control of their lives, and they don't like that. The hymn writer that we just sang, he loves it, that God is in control. If you have a good God, and he's a just God, and he's a righteous God, he's not going to do evil towards you. He's going to do what is good. That doesn't mean he won't spank you if you need a bit of discipline, or he won't chide you with regard to your sin, or confront you with it so that you repent. But all that's good, 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 good that he's doing to you so that you don't spend life in, in hell. When you die, you'll go to be with him in glory. Isn't that great that God will not let us get away with our sin and perish? <laughs> Whatever he ordains for you, it's, it's for good. The world doesn't like that because they don't want God telling them and bossing them around. Not knowing, of course, that if they answer to his instructions and so on, they would receive his peace and kindness and graciousness and forgiveness that we have experienced. Well, tonight we have our Bible study at uh, 6 o'clock, and we're entering the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. By the way, if you haven't, if you're not attuned to that, chapters 14, 15, and 16 are the last will and testimony that Christ gave to his disciples before crucifixion. So it is wonderful to see our Lord concerned about the spiritual equilibrium of his disciples. He's not all wrapped up in, oh, I'm going to die in a few hours in this terrible, torturous, painful death of the cross. What he's concerned about is his disciples and what his absence is going to do to them and how they're going to feel about that. Their sorrow their remorse, their sense of being forsaken, and all of those kind of things that flood. I'm experiencing that with Don. So he comes to the disciples and he says, you need to think this way, this way, about my departure. Not your way, this way. It's a wonderful blessing. At 5 o'clock, we're going to meet for choir rehearsal. Say, I can't, I can't carry a tune. Well... Y'all come out and just sing. If you, do you like singing? That, that's, what you, that's your audition right there. You just have to like to sing. No one's going to embarrass you, make you stand up and do a solo or anything like that. But if you would like to sing, we need choir members. We are dismissed.